Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. In this talk, Alan Freeland tells us about the history of language. So by definition, before we get to the origins of writing, we're talking prehistory. So the historic record is, to say the least, sparse. This also means that world-famous anthropologists and linguists who study this subject have conflicting opinions. And I do highlight as I go through some of these differences, but in order to give us some sense of narrative as we go along, I've had to pick and choose which views to promote. So what is language? Surprisingly, the word language seems to be incredibly difficult to define. The Oxford Dictionaries define language as the principal method of human communication consisting of words used in structured and conventional way and conveyed by speech, writing or gesture. Whereas perhaps the most famous living linguist and often called the father of modern linguistics, Noam Chomsky writes, there's no reason to believe that the essential purpose of language is communication. He goes on to say, language can be used to transmit information, but it also serves many other purposes, to establish relationships amongst people, to express or clarify thought, for play, for creative mental activity, to gain understanding, and so on. And he ends by saying, in my opinion, there is no reason to accord privileged status to one or other of these modes. So defining language has always been troublesome. Perhaps that's why people who are good with words have chosen to approach the subject from very oblique viewpoints. Max Weindrich wrote, a language is a dialect with an army and a navy. And the most famous Persian poet, Rumi, in the 13th century said, silence is the language of God, all else is poor translation. All very helpful. So where else can we turn for an understanding of the word language? So when in doubt, we can always seek the advice of the classic Greek philosophers. Late in the 5th century BCE, Plato writes a dialogue known as the Cratylus. Here he presents an imagined debate between Socrates, Hermogenes and Cratylus on the correctness of words used to refer to things. Hermogenes takes a conventionist view that words mean what a society chooses those words to mean. And if they wish to call a man a horse and a horse a man, they're at liberty to do so. Cratylus takes a naturalistic view and believes that names were provided by their elders in ancient time and the names belong naturally to their objects. During the course of the debate, the following points are made. The original names may have become corrupted over time, e.g. with sound shifts. The elders may have chosen inappropriate names. Names are descriptive of the objects they referred to. Etymological experts are required to determine the meaningful components of each word. Not all components are meaningful. A word is best understood by looking at all its uses in different dialects and societies. And some names may have been acquired from other languages and therefore are not susceptible to Greek rules. Other philosophers like Democrates and Epicurus argue that the arbitrary nature of the naming of objects and that language started with gestures before vocalization. Some argue that articulated emotion led to language and that human life was once like animals and that we developed. In many respects, these are exactly the same debates that are happening today amongst linguists and anthropologists. So since language scholars believe European languages and Indian languages share the same roots, the other source we could look for insight are the great Indian thinkers. Indian five rupee stamp from 2004 celebrates Panini, Sanskrit scholar of around the 4th century BCE, not to be confused with an Italian sandwich. This Panini is often regarded as the first scholar of descriptive linguistics. His documentation of Sanskrit helped to make it the lingua franca across the Indian subcontinent for a thousand years. And unlike the Greeks who philosophized about language, Panini sought to understand how language worked from a scientific perspective. 
He wrote a book consisting of 3,959 verses or rules and developed an almost mathematical meta-language for his descriptions. His scientific treatment of grammar and how it works, how the words are formed, called morphology, was more advanced than anything in the West until the 20th century and informed much of the research of Ferdinand Saussure, who we will meet shortly. Panini lived in Gandahara, now in modern-day Pakistan, probably just before or contemporary with Alexander the Great's conquest of Central Asia. He documented the concept of phonemes, how words are voiced, and morphemes, how words got their meaning. Verse number one, for example, introduced terminology to allow discussion of how sound changes and meaning are related. A good example is the English noun song and its verbal equivalents sing, sang, and sung. One last attempt at defining language, and then I really must get a move on. To get meaning from this joke, there is a whole backstory that needs to be shared between those having the conversation. You have to know that these are characters from early 20th century popular American comedy films by the Marx Brothers, Groucho Marx, known for his quick-fire witticisms. He is speaking to the prim and proper Mrs. Claypool. You have to know that America was predominantly a, a Christian society and that many American Christians believe that God appoints our leaders and that Trump was the leader of America. You also have to know that according to the same Christian beliefs, when God is displeased with mankind, God shows his wrath by visiting one or more of a number of misfortunes on mankind, such as plagues and locusts. You also have to know that the phrase run out of is a phrasal verb that has nothing to do with running or being outside of, but instead means to have used all of something up and there is none of it left. That's a huge amount of context and information. It also highlights why understanding language is such a complex task. And that is perhaps the difference between communication and language. Language allows you to communicate a shared history and culture without having to spell everything out and without the recipient having to work too hard to get the point you're making. This feature of language that distinguishes it from communication is called underdeterminacy. If I think you know something and will know to make use of that information in the context in which I'm communicating, then I can leave that information out. This implies that language can never be fully understood without a shared culture. So do animals have language? The reason for the discussion of the definition of the word language is that some scientists define language as a defining characteristic of humans, in which case, by definition, other animals don't have language. Others have tried to define language as complex grammar, in particular, the ability to use recursion and nested phrases. This approach also runs into trouble. As soon as you define a tight, unambiguous rule, some anthropologists will highlight a non-industrialized tribe in a forest or desert somewhere that has a recognizable language, but without this feature. So what is it that animals communicate? The first level or phrase is the broadcast phase, broadcasting vocalization requests or demands, birds on a perch singing, this is my territory, keep out, or anyone fancy mating are good examples. The me here now phase, vocalizations are again broadcast, but personalized requests or demands to those nearby is done by gestures, pointing, reaching and grabbing are very common. As with everything biological, communication evolved because it gave an evolutionary advantage. Stage three I've called alerting, an example being the meerkat that is on guard for danger, calling out when it sees a predator. If the predator is a snake, then as long as one is careful, snakes can be killed, whilst eagles and jackals are best hidden from. So there are different calls for these two classes of predators. The last category, according to linguists, but not anthropologists, is unique to humans and is called shared intentionality, where we collaborate to agree a common future outcome. I suppose a corollary of this would be the argument. Are humans the only animals that argue? The fifth category is storytelling. Jonathan Gottschall in his book, The Storytelling Animal, How Stories Made Us Human, positions stories as the flight simulators, the virtual reality test environment for life. Our emotions, our empathy, and our ability to handle real life situations are developed by stories. Reading fiction, rather than turning you into a bookworm, enables you to be more sociable. Stories help us to learn and therefore are of great evolutionary advantage. 
although I don't think many anthropologists will go quite as far as Jane Austen. In increasing levels of sophistication, communication can be broadcast messages, they can refer to something in the here and now, they can be specific alarm or communication, or can be used for strategic planning or to tell stories. So how do linguists and anthropologists think we evolved from broadcasting and the here and now, strategic planning and telling stories? The answer requires an understanding of the meaning of signs. Language is built from signs and the study of signs is called semiotics. Creating signs, either deliberately or accidentally, is easy, as we shall see. What is less easy is making sure the intended audience understands the signs. These three quotes set the scene for our discussion on signs and are quite insightful. From Terry Pratchett, we take away that any mark is a sign of something. And in particular, letters or alphabetic characters and symbols are signs. From J.K. Rowling, we take away that signs are not just visual, all our senses can detect signs, and that signs have a moral value associated with them, goodness and badness. And John Paul Getty, despite his lack of certainty, confirms that even objects not designed as signs communicate something, and we are particularly sensitive to objects as status symbols. Two people who put signs on the map, so to speak, Ferdinand Saussure, a Swiss linguist of the late 19th century, laid the foundations for modern linguistics, and in particular, the relationship of signs to language and language to meaning and thought. And Charles Sanders Peirce, an American philosopher in the first part of the 20th century, created the first comprehensive science of science, including a rich classification system. And we'll look at a very tiny part of their theories. Charles Peirce introduced the concept that is useful to classify signs into three types, the icon, which has a likeness to the object it is assigned for. So portraits and statues are iconic signs. Second, some signs have some physical connection with an object and re reference that object through that connection. These are called index signs. So any of you who are photographers know that despite its abundance, it's very difficult to take good pictures of rain. So if you want to indicate rain, one good way to do this is to photograph a puddle. Likewise, if you see smoke coming from a forest, it could be a sign of a forest fire. Footprints are a sign that someone has been there. These are called index signs. Index signs are essential for any good detective story. The third type of sign is a symbol which has no direct connection with the thing it is the sign for. It is purely a matter of societal convention what the sign means. Traffic lights are an example, as are letters and words. And symbols often have multiple meanings very simple drawing of a person in a wheelchair. This is its first meaning for us. In this sense, it's iconic. Its second meaning is that for disabled access, not just wheelchair users. Its formal title is the international symbol of access. In semiotic speak, these two things, what the sign shows and what the sign means, are often termed the sign's denotation and the sign's connotation. What makes signs and symbols so flexible and powerful is the layers of meaning they can connote. Language depends on symbols and words and letters are symbols. In the search for the origins of language, scientists are somewhat hampered by the lack of evidence. Clearly there's no documentary audio recordings of early language. So they're reliant on looking for signs and trying to interpret those signs. So did early man understand signs? Of course, she would have been much more in tune with nature than we are and signs of spring and of autumn would have been looked for and understood. And one obvious example of our hunter-gatherer forefathers would have been tracking. They would have been expert at reading the type, the number, the direction of travel, and the speed of a quarry or a predator. The question is, how did they communicate this information to each other? When did they start communicating it and how? So in this final part of scene setting, let's remind ourselves as the capabilities of our ancestors. And to keep things simple, we can look at Homo erectus from about 1 million years before present and early Homo sapiens from about 300,000 years before present. Homo erectus is believed to have walked like us and been hunter-gatherers, have hunted large animals collaboratively, have used tools such as knives, axes and lances, have cared for the sick and the injured, have been seafaring, reaching distant islands such as Java and Socotra in large enough numbers to establish long-lived colonies. They have used fire, probably for cooking light and heat, and some anthropologists believe they socialised at night around a campfire. Though, of course, only two households are up to six people. 
The Homo erectus brain size is about a thousand cc's, which is in the range of the typical Homo sapien. Homo erectus specimen from around 400,000 years BP has something called a hyoid bone, very similar to Homo sapiens, but without evidence of muscle attachment. And in Homo sapiens, it's these muscles that connect to the larynx and allow us to produce a wide range of sounds. It is thus theorized that Homo erectus would not have been able to produce the wide range of vocal sounds that we can. Some scientists suggest that this indicates that Homo erectus couldn't have spoken a language. Others disagree. Homo sapiens emerged around 300,000 years ago, and whilst many believe it is not yet extinct, others question whether sapien, meaning wise and knowledgeable, is an appropriate species name. We've seen that early man was a social animal and that probably understood and was able to interpret index signs. What about icons? In archaeology, there's an artifact called a manuport. This is an object that has been moved from its place of origin to the place where it was found in a way that is most likely explained by human agency. In plain speak, somebody carried it. The Macapanasgat pebble from around 3 million years before present is a 260 gram, 8.3 centimeter long reddish brown pebble with natural chipping and wear patterns that make it look like a crude rendition of a human face. It was found in a cave in South Africa three miles from the nearest possible natural source for it, and was near the bones of an early humanoid. It is definitely not a manufactured object, and it seems likely that some Australopithecine recognised it as a symbolic face and brought it back to the cave. The Urfound Manuport is a fossilised fragment of a cuttlefish dated 300,000 years before present. The fossil was found at an archaeological site in eastern Morocco, and it was amongst man-made stone tools. And while cuttlefish fossils are not themselves rare, they're not found native to the region in which the Urfoud Manuport was found. It is therefore thought that this fossil was intentionally brought back to the camp due to its natural phallic resemblance. No evidence of carving or shaping has been detected. These and many other Manuports would suggest that early humans understood iconic signs. And lastly, man-made. Over 200 what are termed Venus figurines have been found across Eurasia, made out of different materials, typically between a couple of inches and a foot tall. Whatever their original function, their widespread distribution and similar form would suggest a highly developed language would be required to explain the significance of these objects to different communities. Another type of sign for which there is no evidence is mime, but many linguists and anthropologists believe mime would have been an essential component of early language. Sign language. Of the 600 Europeans who set sail in 1527 in a Spanish expedition to colonize what is today Florida, only four people survived. One of them, Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca, after eight years of near-death experiences and kindness from Native Americans, eventually made it back to Spain and wrote of his experiences. In his writings, he talks about how the Indian tribes all spoke different, mutually unintelligible languages, but they had a common sign language. Sadly, we have very little extra detail from this time, the early 16th century. But we do have a 1930s film of a three-day meeting held in Montana between General Scott and a dozen representatives of Native American tribes to try and document Plains Indian sign language. All linguists believe that gestures are part of language. They vary in their views as to the significance of those gestures. Some believe that gestures just provide emphasis to speech, others that gestures are a key component, and some posit that sign language predates spoken language. Other believes that both speech and sign language develop together. So how did the first words get spoken? No one knows, but some experts propose the following. First, by gestures, pointing and pantomiming, to convey objects and actions. For example, an iconic gesture for digging may mean, let's go dig for tubers. However, if the children stay behind and don't see the actual digging for tubers, they may interpret the gestures as simply, let's go. Second, the pointing and pantomiming is accompanied by vocalizations to indicate emotional state, such as danger, urgency, fear, etc. And apes have these vocalizations. Next, the vocalizations are used to reinforce the gestures, imitating sounds such as an animal or running water or even the swish of grass. And next, the vocalization is used to reinforce the action of pointing, 
to indicate locality, the words for this here versus that there evolve. Once the usefulness of having these vocalizations to convey shared meaning is appreciated, people will quickly develop sounds for objects and actions, and the challenge becomes agreeing one particular sound. And lastly, vocalization gradually replaces pantomime. A human gene which allows us to generate articulate speech first appeared on the human genome around 150,000 years ago. So it's likely that spoken language is earlier than this. This is about the time that humans started spreading out of Africa. This leads me to ponder whether mankind spreading out all over the world was triggered by some almighty row. I should note that many linguists challenge this approach of a significant mutant gene. Michael Kopalis has a lovely phrase to describe the state of our current language evolution, given our use of texting. He says we have gone from the waggling of tongues to the wiggling of thumbs. Before we leave the world of prehistory, we should acknowledge the simple act of sharing a common meaning of a word is pretty impressive. Stephen Pinker writes, imagine a linguist studying a newly discovered tribe. A rabbit scurries by and a native shouts, Gavagai. What does Gavagai mean? Logically speaking, it needn't be rabbit. It could refer to that particular rabbit, Flopsy, for example. It could mean any furry thing, any mammal, or any member of that species of rabbit. It could mean scurrying rabbit, scurrying thing, or scurrying in general. It could mean possessor of at least one rabbit's foot, or a host of other meanings. Having said that, by the time the word had been used a hundred times in a hundred different contexts, its meaning would have been honed down to something meaningful and useful to the community. And once we have a collaborating group of humans with a basic set of words for objects and for actions and a few pointing words, even though we're still at the Metars and Eugene stage, linguists feel much more confident in explaining how language evolved. So with spring well and truly upon us, I chose this example to illustrate how what at first appear to be very abstract concepts derive from very real and physical objects and actions. The English word for leap, for example, derives from the Latin word saltus. Other words from the same root are desultory, from jumping down, somersault, from jumping over, exultant, from jumping up, and insulting, from jumping upon, and assault, from jumping at, all very physical actions. So abstract words come from metaphors, and metaphors come from many sources. The human body was an obvious source. It's always with the speaker and the listener. And there is hardly any part of the body which has not been enlisted as a metaphor for spatial and more abstract concepts. I think the Hungarian leaves no doubt as to the source of the metaphor, while the Hebrew shows the same metaphor being used for spatial and temporal relationships. And how completely we have abstracted from the physical world of space to the conceptual world of time. Our skill for abstractness it meant it was very easy and inevitable step to apply the same words that are used to describe spatial relationships to describe temporal ones in all languages. And despite Albert Einstein claiming his theories of relativity, that people thought time and space were two separate things, and his concept of space-time was a new way of thinking about reality, in reality, we've been treating space and time the same for thousands of years. Guy Deutscher poetically describes the role of metaphors in language as follows. So finally, the flow of metaphors towards abstraction is beginning to reveal how life and death in language are entwined. Whereas in poetry, metaphors turn into empty cliches once they die of overuse. In everyday language, dead metaphors are the alluvium from which grammatical structures emerge. Like a reef which grows from layer upon layer of dead coral skeletons, new structures in language can rise from the layers of dead metaphors deposited by the flow towards abstraction. Scientific community is also split on what insights into the formation of language can pidgin and creole languages give us. Some like Steven Pinker argue that pidgin languages can be converted into proper languages within a couple of generations because the children create a sophisticated grammar in order to express themselves more clearly. Others, like Guy Deutscher, argue that all pidgin speakers come to the language as a second language and already have concepts of what comprises grammar, and thus we can't deduce very much. So what is a pidgin and what is a creole language? A pidgin language is a grammatically simplified means of communication, 
that develops between two or more groups that do not have a language in common. Typically, its vocabulary and grammar are limited and often drawn from several languages. The Creole language is a stable natural language that develops from the simplifying and mixing of different languages into a new one within a fairly brief period of time. And often they do evolve from pidgin languages. And like any language, Creoles are characterized by a consistent system of grammar, possess large stable vocabularies, are acquired by children as their native language. These three features distinguish a Creole from a pidgin. Sadly, many pigeons and Creoles arrived out of the forced migration of slaves from many countries to work on plantations. How simple the syntax and grammar is in a pigeon. During the second half of the 19th century, European slave traders forcibly took people from Melanesia, the collection of islands north and east of Australia, to work on the sugar plantations in Australia. Even today, there are over 1,300 distinct languages across the 2,000 odd islands in Melanesia. The slaves in Australia had no common language, so since the slave masters spoke English, mostly, Pidgin English became the lingua franca between the tribes. In the first decade of the 20th century, Australia deported all the enslaved people. Many went back to Papua New Guinea, and their Pidgin English was again the only common language they had. They called this language Tok Pisin, which means Talk Pidgin. Papua New Guinea gained independence in 1975, and adopted English as the official language of state, but with Tok Pisin, an officially recognised and supported language, which is taught in primary schools. We thus have an example of a fourth or fifth generation language, which has evolved into a Creole. Tok Pisin takes his vocabulary mainly from English and some common Melanesian words, but let's just focus on what Tok Pisin can teach us about how languages develop. As you might expect, a lot of different words sounded the same, so got encoded the same. Also, sometimes it wasn't clear what the native English speaker meant. So you get confusion over say, ship or jib. So the vocabulary is quite small with words having a broad range of meanings. And as we've seen, metaphors are a great way to add to the vocabulary. In this example, screw is used to represent a joint in the body. And the top in speakers clearly felt the English grammar wasn't expressive enough for them and developed it presumably from one of the other languages the people spoke. So new forms like noun subject markers and transitive verb markers, neither of which we have in English, were introduced into Tokpisin. But the one I like, and I think would be a useful addition to English, is the inclusive and exclusive us. Fred E. Binim Singultum Yumi Longpati. Fred invited us to the party, including you. Fred E. Bigum E. Bin Sigotum Mipella Longpati. Fred invited us to the party, excluding you. Very unambiguous. So the realization that children invent grammar leads to this insight as to how to create a language. First, you need a group of humans who wish to collaborate. Then you need a few pre-existing content words that relate to physical objects and actions used by adults and observed by children. Then you need a couple of generations of children to bring their creative desire to express themselves and innate pattern matching skills to develop a grammar. And et voila, you have a language. And there's an interesting implication of this hypothesis. Whilst there are today primitive tribes, there's no such thing as a primitive language. These languages are capable of expressing as wide a range of meanings, relationships, tenses, motivations as any modern language. Similarly, there are Stone Age societies, but there's no such thing as a Stone Age language. Earlier in this century, the anthropological linguist Edward Sapir wrote, when it comes to linguistic form, Plato walks with the Macedonian swineherd and Confucius with the headhunting savage of Assam. So hopefully that's given us a flavor of how language evolved and developed. Today, there are around 6,000 human spoken languages. This is a fraction of what there were. When countries were being formed, different regions in the countries had their own languages, which were mutually unintelligible to each other. It was the concept of the nation state, which really started to take hold in Europe from around the 18th century, that drove the need for a common language, and in consequence, the death of thousands of languages. How much language is bound up in cultural identity can be seen by the passion for which people defend their language from improper use, such as bad grammar or the infiltration of foreign words. You can also see it in the vitriolic comments posted to websites where people can complain bitterly that their language has been forgotten. Yet, it's the most significant, most important language in the whole world. 
You also see it in China, where the Communist Party are systematically getting rid of Tibetan, Mongolian, Uyghur languages from China. This tree is meant to help us visualize how a branch of the world's languages called the Proto-Indo-European language evolved and split into all these different languages. Because this original Indo-European languages no longer exist, linguists use the term proto-language so they can talk about it and the characteristics the language must have had in order for it to give rise to all the languages descended from it. You can see that English evolved from the West Germanic branch of the Germanic branch of the tree. This branch of the tree split off from the Romance languages quite early on. So in Britain, the English language roots are Germanic, but since we were conquered by the French, French has been incorporated into much of our language. And since we have many Celtic influences as well, a native English speaker could argue ours is the richest, most diverse, most expressive language in the whole world. One could, but one wouldn't. And one reason why one wouldn't, and to give one example of the passions evoked by language, we need look no further than the great representative of Vittonians, Jacob Rees-Mogg, who in Parliament called Welsh a foreign language and compared it to Latin. Liz Saville, applied Cymru MP, was told extending the sentence in Welsh was against the rules of the chamber. She explained that she was wishing everyone a happy St. Patrick's Day in Welsh and Irish and unwittingly committed an act of dissent. Westminster's disdain for minority languages knows no bounds. She went on to say, this is not a criticism of the speaker who only enforces the rules, but those rules were specifically designed to exclude the speakers of languages other than English. It is high time they are amended to reflect the reality of our modern society. Even better would be for Wales to follow the example of our Celtic cousins in Ireland and build an independent nation that gives full respect to our native language. She then commented on Twitter, Jacob Rees-Mogg may not be aware, but Welsh is not a foreign language. It has been spoken in Britain for hundreds of years before English even existed. Language clearly raises strong passions. The language tree creates the impression that all languages are interconnected and perhaps language originated once, perhaps in Central Asia and spread around the world. What the tree misses out is dozens of languages that many linguists can find no connection to our language tree. Many of these isolated languages still exist in each continent. The one that's in Europe is the Basque language. One linguist has written, the Basques are the pure descendants of the people that occupied Europe in the Stone Age and which in the rest of the continent crossbred with arrivals from Asia. The fact these isolated languages exist and this taken together with the ease with which grammar evolves would suggest that language creation is relatively easy for humans and consequently probably evolved multiple times. So why does language change? So the first driving force in why languages change is that we are persistently looking for patterns and when we spot one, we apply the pattern rule, even if it is incorrect. The second driving force is the desire to be more expressive, to add emphasis, to make sure our meaning is well understood. And the last driving force is economy, the desire to say what needs to be said with the least effort and fewer words or phonemes. A few examples to illustrate each force. Children seem to be wired for pattern spotting and looking for simple rules that would explain the world to them. Supposedly, small children who know the name of this implement to be a fork, when shown this implement, will come up with a logical name for it. What do you suppose that name is? A threek. How do you say no forcibly? This little boy has found a way which uses a rather physical grammar. However, with a little more decorum, we can use the English negative marker not as an example of the forces of erosion and expression. The original negation mark in English was ne, as in French. For more emphasis, like saying no way, people started saying ne outwit, meaning not ever a thing, or in other words, nothing whatsoever. By the 10th century, ne outwit had contracted to just know it, but it still retained its former meaning. So the phrase like, ich ne seo it still meant, I not see nothing whatsoever. Grammatically, very similar to ne pas in French. Gradually, as the phrase was used more and more, erosion set in, nawit became naut, and the phrase, I ne see, naut, changed from an emphatic nothing whatsoever to an everyday no. And since there was no consistent spelling, naut was sometimes spelt with an O, sometimes as naught. 
And gradually the negation mark and no was dropped and we were left with, I see not. Guy Deutscher says, not is thus a prime example of both material and social decline. It started as a paunchy no wit, nothing whatsoever, a word rich in length and weighty in meaning, but its form was reduced to not and its meaning eroded to the plainest of no's. Other examples of our craving for order. We all know to make a noun plural, you mostly have ness. Logically, therefore, a noun ending in s is likely to be a plural. And if we take the s off, we'll get the singular. Both cherry and pea came into English from the French, cherries and peas. Both sound as if they were plurals. So off with the s's. Similarly, you can turn a verb into a noun by adding an or to the end, as in visit, visitor, govern, governor, and ven, vendor. In the 18th century, with the prevalence of newspapers, there was an important job called an editor. However, at the time, there was no verb to edit. People invented it. Likewise, we had legislators, but no verb to legislate, so one was invented. Lastly, nouns can be turned into adjectives by adding y, as in blood, bloody. The word grotesque was abbreviated to grotty in the 1960s and popularised by the Beatles in A Hard Day's Night. In the 1970s, Reginald Perrin then popularised the noun grot, derived from grotty. Again, an invented but logical word. An economy of speech isn't just about using shorter words, but some phonemes and sequences of phonemes are easier to say than others, and this can cause language to change, even though it creates disorder. The Latin for flowers is a classic example. Before the 5th century BCE, the noun flos was a well-behaved regular noun. Then sometime during the 5th century BCE, every undoubled S between two vowels became an R. So the nominative form kept the S, whereas all the other common forms, the S changed to R. So yes, it has become less regular, but there is a pattern to its irregularity. I think we can get a sense of why this change took place. It was simply that some combinations of sounds are easier to say than others. The same S to R change happened with the Latin word justus, meaning just. The Latin word for administration of justice should have been justice dicto, but this is quite hard to pronounce, and jurisdiction is much easier. This is why in English we have rustic, the S is next to a consonant, so it wasn't changed to an R, but we have rural, where S was, changed, was between two vowels, so changed to an R. This economy or ease of voicing sounds had two great manifestations in the Germanic languages, a great consonant shift and a great vowel shift. The great consonant shift is named Grimm's Law after its discoverer, the linguist Jacob Grimm, brother of Wilhelm Grimm, and who together wrote or edited Grimm's collection of fairy tales. Jacob noted that European languages had undergone a consonant shift. It started with the consonants that block all air out of the mouth and thus slow down speech, b, d, and g. They became pronounced the same, but without stopping the air, i.e. they became k, t, and p. This didn't leave any space for k, t, and p to express themselves, so they migrated to ch, th, and f, which are again easy to say and in English, the chair further migrated to her before increasingly disappearing altogether. German speakers, recognising that the way words were then pronounced didn't match the way they were spelt, changed the spelling to match the pronunciation. This didn't happen in English, so our spelling often reflects the way the words were pronounced before the change. For example, pisk in German migrated to fisk, which in English migrated to fish. The consonant shift happened between the 7th and the 10th centuries. Another shift known as the Great Vowel Shift happened in the 15th and 16th centuries. So, for example, meat was really pronounced like mate to match eight. So we're learning that nothing about language is constant. The pronunciation changes, spelling and even meaning changes. For example, in Chaucer's The Merchant's Tale, in the first line he used as the past tense, he used maked as the past tense of make. And in the last line, he used made as the past tense of made. Yet we cope with this very well. We may have strong views as to what is proper, but we have no problem understanding either and either, meaning the same, or dreamed and dreamt, meaning the same. Yet we have a sense that language, English in our case, is getting worse. And as the quotes show, learned people throughout history have thought that the language of their forebears was better than the language of their day.
Similarly with grammar, changes that make the language more regular and easier to learn are much harder to spot than irregularities in special cases. Language changes, the forces of pattern making, the desire to be more expressive, and the desire for economy of speaking continually drive change, but there are no measures that show that language is getting worse. The remainder of this talk covers the history of writing, where we have a lot more evidence. And we saw earlier that signs that were indexes to the physical world were probably important in establishing the first words. And surviving manuports and sculptures shows that Stone Age man was well able to understand and appreciate iconic signs. For the establishment of writing systems, man needed to master symbolic signs. Some of the earliest signs we know that have symbolic meaning are marks of ownership. Signs have been used since the Stone Age to mark ownership or even for quality control. Cattle branding has been used probably since the start of herding around 10,000 years ago to identify who owns which cattle. In the Stone Age, pots were marked with signs which could mean who, either a person or a tribe, owned them and who produced them. And even literate and artistic people had a design for a symbol or a monogram to mark their stuff. Even the Chinese terracotta warriors and their weapons have a whole variety of marks, many probably associated with the name of the supervisor of the team that produced it. Although some argue they also help with how to assemble the object from its component parts, a warrior or a horse, for example. However, the most famous examples of iconic signs for assembly come from closer to home. Perhaps the exemplar of using signs to communicate complex assembly instructions without words or grammar comes from Ikea in Sweden, with their mixture of iconic and symbolic signs. The ownership signs that have been most durable throughout the ages are Mason's marks, simply because their material, stone, is so durable. All countries and cultures who built with stone show Mason's marks. Masons travelled to where the work was, sometimes right across continents. Some of the marks in use from ancient Egypt 3,000 years ago, Rome in the 6th century before Common Era, Canterbury Cathedral in the late Middle Ages, and the Taj Mahal around 400 years ago. In general, the signs are made of a few straight lines, as these are the simplest and quickest to produce with a chisel. In Europe, with the establishment of guilds from around the 12th century, masons were awarded their mark, which they kept for life after they completed their apprenticeship and were accepted into the guild. Many of the masons in the early years would have been illiterate, but masons' marks show that even amongst the literate, the use of drawn signs with symbolic meaning was common. Linguists believe spoken language probably evolved many times, whereas written languages evolved only a very few times and relatively recently. 5,000 years ago. Current belief is that written language was invented at least four times in four different regions. The four regions are China, Mesopotamia, Egypt, and the area around Mexico called Mesoamerica. The big difference is that spoken language wasn't invented, whereas written languages were invented, albeit bit by bit. In Mesopotamia, it seems that the first writings were for bookkeeping, keeping records of grain, animals, slaves, and food supplies. The earliest writing in Egypt related to standardization of ceremonial displays, whilst writing in China is first attested in divination rituals. And the hieroglyphic writing of Mesoamerica was motivated by the need for correct following of religious rituals. Aborigines in Australia with their carved and inscribed rock cylinders from 20,000 years ago, Civilizations along the Indus River, and bizarrely, the Rapa Nui people in the remote Pacific Easter Island and famous for its giant stone figures, are all candidates for independently originating writing. What was totally revelationary for me is that writing systems are not initially conceived to record speech. It's not poets that we have to thank for written language, but accountants and administrators. While spoken words are likely started as indexical signs to an object or an action, writing likely started using icons and then indexes. The Sumerians, five to 6,000 years ago, for example, would use small shaped pieces of clay as tokens to represent objects and seal these tokens in a clay sphere or envelope to record in a tamper-proof way the quantity of objects that the token represented. So someone owning, say, 10 sheep 
giving those sheep to a shepherd to look after for the summer could record the transaction by putting 10 circular tokens with a cross on in a clay ball and sealing it. And sometimes the size and shape of the token was used to indicate quantity. Archaeologists believe that quite abstract concepts could be represented by these tokens, like the tetrahedron, meaning a man's day's work. Here on the left is an example of a clay envelope. Some bright spark then had the idea of creating an impression on the tokens on the outside of the clay envelope, so you didn't have to break the envelope to see what was inside. Sometime later, someone tweeted that you didn't need to put the tokens inside the clay envelope, you could just use the impressions. The next step was dispense with the clay pieces and use some sort of pen, a stick for example, to draw the shape of the impressions and also dispense with the envelope and just use a simple tablet. The letter had been invented. When we come to written languages, all the words started as pictograms and the first phase of writing wasn't to represent the sounds of words, but was for accountancy and to record rights. And isn't it interesting that the envelope was invented before a letter? So to begin with, these tablets, these letters, were more like spreadsheets than Word documents. They were nicely ruled into columns and rows, and in one column you had the indentation made by the token, an indexing sign, or a picture, an icon, of the object. And in the next columns you had an indication of quantities. Gradually, as demand described more and more objects grew, iconic pictograms became more popular. The Egyptians and the Sumerians in Iraq both developed these meaningful pictograms called hieroglyphs about the same time. The Egyptians were either the more artistic or the Sumerians the more able to handle abstractions, depending on which team you're rooting for. Note that both also developed symbols for actions, verbs in grammatical speak. Whilst the Egyptian may be more artistic, once you understood the symbolism, the Sumerian is less ambiguous, at least for the words man and woman. The Egyptians who were using stone for non-movable writing and papyrus for movable writing were happy to continue to develop their writing artistically and their language ended up with many hundreds of symbols, making it slow to learn. Perhaps because the Sumerians felt more comfortable with more abstract designs, and perhaps they, because they didn't like the way that when you used a sharp stick to carve a pictogram in the clay, it threw up swarf, which messed up your drawings. And when you fired the tablets in an oven, the swarf was permanently fixed to the tablet. Perhaps because of this, they invented the pen. And for the Sumerians, the pen had a triangular cross-section, and to write it, you made repeated impressions in the clay. Whilst this took a lot of artistic freedom away from the scribe, it did increase standardization and hence readability, and the Babylonians and the Syrians adopted the same technique. And this writing style is called cuneiform, from the Latin for wedge-shaped. Another example of how tools and medium shape the form of the written language. With such a powerful invention, it's not surprising that from around 2000 BCE, other nearby civilizations in Crete, Cyprus, and the Indus Valley also developed primitive writing systems. Writing is not considered a language until the symbols of the writing can be spoken. In this next section, we look at how written words were given the sounds of the spoken words. Using an image to represent a phoneme, a sound of the language, is called a rebus. And this was the first technique used to link the written and spoken words. So using this rebus technique, in Sumerian, the word for barley is pronounced sheh, and the word for milk is pronounced gar. So drawing the pictograms of barley and milk creates the sound shegar, which means beautiful. So a bedtime mug of Horlicks is beautiful in more than one way. All languages use this technique to give voice to the written word. And because all languages use the same principle, some linguists argue this indicates a common origin for written language. Irving Finkel at the British Museum, however, says that punning and rebus is a basic human behavior. It's the way our brains are wired. So we can't help ourselves from developing a written language this way. And written languages developed a number of times independently. As an example of the rebus effect being used in Egyptian hieroglyphs, the BBC programme, The Secret History of Writing, showed the Egyptians defeating the Awash people. Their heads are between their legs. And just to emphasize how total their defeat was, the warriors have been castrated as well, with their cut off penises shown next to their heads. So the pitch on the tablet tells the story. The parts highlighted in gold are symbols being used for the sound they represent. 
In the middle is a highlighted symbol of a catfish and under it a chisel. In the ancient Egyptian language of the time, catfish is pronounced nar and chisel is pronounced mer. Together, using the rebus principle, they give the name of the first pharaoh, Nama. This picture thus represents both the subjects being described and the sounds of the words for the main actors. So what was originally used for accounting has now become used to clarify pictures to help viewers read those pictures. The rebus principle is then extended to address the full vocabulary of the Egyptian language. A picture of a duck could mean a duck, or the sound of the Egyptian word for duck, saw. The semicircle, described by the Egyptologists as a cut French breadstick, is pronounced ter. So the two sounds together make sort, the sound of the word for daughter. So a hieroglyph can mean either the thing it depicts or a sound. This has introduced a sense of ambiguity. So all languages introduce a third type of meaning for their symbols, a classifier, which we'll look at in a minute. And true language starts when the sounds of a language are represented visually. Egyptologists claim the Egyptians were the first to invent true language. Assyriologists say it was the Syrians. In China, the earliest known writing for which there is extensive examples is what's termed oracle bone script. A bone, typically a large shoulder blade of an ox, has a question written on it. The question could be, is tomorrow a good day to go to war? Or what is causing the emperor's toothache? A red hot poker is then used to burn a hole in the bone and cause it to crack. The way it cracks informs those wise enough to be able to determine God's reply, what the answer is. This is pyromancy, divination by fire, and was common 12,000 years ago. The writing is less abstracted form of a modern Chinese writing, and the BBC film showed modern teachers using oracle bone script to help Chinese primary school children learn to read and write. The Chinese character of a tree is a picture of a tree, but it's also a phonogram for the sound mu, and it also means to wash oneself. So what did the author intend? The answer is to use a symbol called a classifier to say what category does the character belong to. The three marks in front of the tree symbol is the classifier for water. So the symbol has something to do with water. So in this instance, the character means to wash. There are 214 classifiers in Chinese. And the Egyptians did the same thing. The duck symbol is also a determinative or classifier for the category of birds. The Assyrians and the Middle Americans, i.e. the Mayans, Early writing languages also used exactly the same technique. Classifiers are common in all the Indo-European languages, but have been reduced to two or three classes, and we call them genders, i.e. masculine and feminine in French, masculine, feminine, neuter in German, and most Slavic languages. We're almost there. We have writing systems that use hundreds of icons and symbols to convey meaning. Visually, we have the rebus technique for enabling us to vocalise these sounds and for converting spoken phonemes into pictures. Not quite, we don't have an alphabet, a small set of abstract symbols that can be combined together to create any word. Archaeologists and linguists' current view of where the alphabet was invented is at a turquoise mine in Egypt in the Sinai Peninsula. For the Egyptian pharaohs, turquoise was essential to help them get brought back to life. So from the lush Nile Delta in the west came Egyptians tasked with overseeing the turquoise mining in this desolate site. From the east, from the land called Canaan, modern-day Israel, Palestine, Lebanon, and Syria, and Jordan, came labourers. The Egyptians built a temple to the god of turquoise and mining, Hator, and every time a new overseer was sent to the mine, he erected a large stele to tell the world a bit about himself and his reverence for the gods, looking like tall tombstones. This is all very well for the Egyptians who could read, but the Canaanites were illiterate. The need for cultural exchange between the Canaanites and Egyptians seems to have led the Canaanites to create an alphabet based on the Egyptian symbols, but with a sound of their own language. So, for example, the Egyptian symbol for house is also a classifier for buildings and the sound per. The Canaanites ignored the classifier and the sound value and just used it for its iconic representation, in this case, an icon for a house. In Canaanite, the word for house is bait, some smart Canaanite about 4,000 years ago then had the genius idea to use the symbol for house to represent not the whole word, but just the first phoneme, i.e. the B sound. The genius is you only need about 25 to 30 pitches to represent all speech phonemes. Similarly, the Canaanite's god was a bull called Aleph, so the bull's head became an A. 
The Phoenicians and other Canaanite people had adopted this alphabetic writing system and spread it to Europe via the Greeks and the Romans. It seems that the concept of an alphabet was invented once and all alphabetic languages today can trace their origins to the same original alphabet. Egyptian hieroglyphs hide in every Latin letter. So it was illiterate people that invented the alphabet and I suppose we shouldn't be too surprised. Literate people had worked really hard to read and write hieroglyphs. Why would they invent such a much simpler system that democratized written language? Note that early languages were often written vertically as well as horizontally, and some languages are read left to right, like Latin, and some right to left, like Arabic. And in the early days, there was no standardization. In fact, the form of writing which went right to left on one line and then left to right on the next made a lot of sense. Your writing implement and hand were already at one end of the papyrus or paper, so why not continue writing from that end rather than move all the way back to some notional concept at the beginning of a line? The result of this is we often see letter shapes rotated or reflected as the shapes are adopted by different civilizations. And it's interesting also that the letter E derives from the pictogram for praise, whereas today someone with their hands up means I surrender. But I suppose surrendering to and praising of a more powerful figure are fairly similar concepts. So, and this chart seeks to summarize all the alphabets descended from the original Egyptian hieroglyphs and the Canaanite alphabet. Starting in the blue circle at the bottom of the picture, it shows how the letters A, B, C, and D are represented in each of the languages and the lineage of all those alphabets. A minority of linguists think the symbols that are sometimes found in ancient Indus civilizations mark another origin of the alphabet, but this isn't the majority view. So as a summary of how we got the Latin alphabet, here are the major steps on its 8,000 year development. 8,500 years before Common Era, simple object counting tokens were used in the Middle East. 3,500 BCE, clay envelopes and complex tokens depicting different types of objects were introduced. 3,300 years ago, earliest writing, the hieroglyphs in Mesopotamia and Egypt. 2,500 BCE, adoption of cuneiform for Semitic languages in Mesopotamia and Syria. 1600 BCE, the earliest proto-alphabet by the Canaanites. 1300 BCE, the Phoenician alphabet. And 800 BCE, the first Greek inscriptions. The BBC programme was also very good at highlighting how important the writing medium is in, in the writing process. We've looked at clay and stone, which are the virtue of durability, but are slow to write. When Rome conquered Egypt, it gained access to the writing technology of papyrus, um, which was so cheap to produce that it was imported in bulk, and a book cost the same as one day's wages for a soldier, and a small book could be copied in less than a week. As the Roman Empire weakened, it lost control of Egypt and the source of papyrus and book production ground to a halt. In Europe, post the Roman Empire, parchment from animal skin was used as the writing medium, which was hugely more expensive. The BBC programme relied extensively on the practical experience of a calligrapher, Brody Nuremschwander. He says you can define the period of the Middle Ages as that period when parchment is the dominant or only writing medium, which meant literacy was available only to the very rich, unlike in Roman times. Brody also noted that when he was writing on papyrus, the pen seemed to skate over the papyrus reed, whereas writing on parchment felt more like tattooing and he estimated he could write three times faster with a reed pen on papyrus than a quill pen on parchment. This would have made parchment documents even more expensive. Consequently, parchment books tended to be of very high quality with a very neat and regular writing and to be lavishly illustrated and illuminated, unlike the simple papyrus scrolls. Consequently, across the whole of Europe, very few books were produced a year, a few thousand perhaps. Lavishly illustrated and illuminated manuscripts would cost the same as a middle-class house. The implication was that literacy in the ancient period would have been much higher than in medieval Europe due to the affordability of written texts. And the BBC programme showed the process of producing parchment, how the shape of the parchment showed where the animal's four legs were. The sheets of a large book would use a complete parchment with the sheet folded in half to provide two pages, i.e. four sides. And where the pages folded in half is where the animal's spine would have been hence the term spine of a book. This is how languages develop. The film also took us to Samarkand where the first paper production facilities were established outside China. 
from some account, the technology spread across Central Asia into the Mediterranean and to Islamic Spain and then to Europe. Whereas for the Chinese, writing is akin to painting, both use a brush for artistic effect, the Muslims preferred to use a reed pen. Samarkand was producing millions of sheets of paper a day versus a few hundred thousand sheets a year for a parchment for the whole of Europe. And this helped rapidly increase the availability of knowledge and sparked the Islamic golden age of science. Europe's own golden age was enabled by two unique properties of the Latin alphabet. One unique feature of the alphabet versus using hieroglyphic or ideograms is the number of different symbols required to represent the language is much smaller. The second is how the Romans preferred to represent the letters. The letters were seen as modular, self-contained and regular in size and neatly sitting on a common line. When drawing a line or chiseling into stone, the line can appear to hang in space and the exact end of the line becomes unclear. Thickening the line at its ends helps to anchor the line much more solidly. There is also a metaphorical connection in that it gives the letter a foot to stand on, making it feel much more stable. This leads us to the world of fonts. Fonts are divided into two main types, serif and sans serif. The sans serif being the little strokes that were sometimes put at the end of strokes, making up a letter. The idea originated with the monumental Roman carved inscriptions. Although the terms serif and sans serif are now universally accepted, in the 19th century, the term Roman was used to describe fonts with a serif and the vast majority. And in America, when they were trying to come up with a word to describe a font that differed, they came up with the word Gothic because the Goths came after the Romans and introduced a new style, such as the way words evolve. The fact the letters were separate, uniform in size, sat on a line, made them highly amenable to being used in movable type printing. And Gutenberg in the 1450s was the first to successfully exploit this characteristic Roman letters and produce commercially accessible movable type printing on both parchment and paper. So why was Gutenberg successful? Lambeth Palace Library has a copy of a Bible produced by Gutenberg in the mid-1450s called the Felgate Bible. What customers expected from their books was regularity of typeface and size, regularity of line length, clarity between black letters and white pages, evenness of the inking, as well as illumination and illustrations. Printing could achieve the same or higher quality than the manuscript, and it was illustrated and illuminated by hand afterwards. Until the early 19th century, this was catalogued in the Lambeth Palace Register as a manuscript, I written by hand. The quality was that good. It was only in the 19th century that it was determined that this was a printed Bible. The wealthy discerning customers that had been the market for manuscripts were happy to buy and at much lower price, but to the same quality, printed books, because basically they couldn't tell them apart. Compare the modularity and regularity of the Latin script of the Bible with the Arabic script used in the 13th century Quran. The Arabic script was not amenable to typesetting. The characters are not modular, the cursive style letters are all connected, and often the connection goes beyond the adjacent letter. The characters are interwoven and they don't sit nicely along a line. But the Arabic readers were just as fussy about their books as the Europeans and wanted something that looked like a manuscript, and typesetting simply couldn't deliver the quality. As the expert on the BBC programme said, the well-trained scribe would not have recognised it, i.e. typesetting, as Arabic. And in China, the tens of thousands of characters required made it less practical to use low-cost movable type, and the Chinese stuck with more expensive block printing. So whilst paper enabled China and Central Asia to share knowledge and become the cultural and intellectual leaders by a fluke of the Latin script, only in the West was movable type printing successful, and once paper became available, there was a knowledge explosion in the West, which led to the cultural and intellectual leadership leading to the West. So in conclusion, for maybe 150,000 years or maybe a million years, humans have had language and it has continuously evolved since then. Around 10,000 years ago, we started to communicate using written forms, which preserved the knowledge across time and space and accelerated the acquisition of knowledge. Language continually evolves, and the innovators in language evolution are children and young adults. The last episode of the BBC4 programme, The Secret History of Writing, gave two examples of the impact youngsters today are having on their written language. In Cairo, a group of students discussed the merits of Franco, a phoneticization and alternative script for Arabic into Latin that allows a Latin alphabet keyboard to be used to type out Arabic-sounding words. Some of the students found this much easier than typing Arabic. 
mostly the sound of the English letter is used, but the number three in Latin script is similar to the mirror image of the letter Ayin in Arabic. Similarly, the numbers two, six, seven, and nine are used as symbols to represent sounds that exist in Arabic, but not in the Latin alphabet. These Egyptian Arabic speaking students are doing exactly what their forebears did 4,000 years ago, taking the symbols from one culture and mapping them to the phonemes of their own culture. And in China, we learned that the Chinese students are using pinyin to allow a Latin alphabet keyboard to be used to represent the sounds of a Chinese character. And the smartphone then displays all the Chinese characters which have the same sound. And the phone user then selects the appropriate one. And in both cases, the young people are forgetting how to write. So if I sparked an interest in to know more, these are the six books that I used. They're all written for the layperson. Stephen Pinker's The Language Instinct represents the genetic approach to acquiring language, and that is unique to Homo sapiens. Guy Deutsch's The Unfolding of Language I found the most enjoyable. Daniel Everett represents the cultural and social approach and the language starts in Homo erectus a million years ago, and his book is a rebuttal of Pinker's book. These would be my top three. Michael Tomasello is perhaps the least engaging, most academic of the authors, but he also represents the cultural school in contrast to Pinker and Chomsky. And all these authors have got video interviews on YouTube, if you prefer that medium. Bill Bryson's Mother Tongue and Jonathan Gottschall's The Storytelling Animal address different but related topics, the evolution of English and how stories made us human. And when it's next repeated and becomes available on iPlayer, I thoroughly recommend the BBC4 programme, The Secret History of Writing. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.